Today is the day of the year that much of the religious world remembers the suffering of Jesus. He died on the cross and, of course, on the third day was resurrected. We read from Peter this week in our Give Attention to Reading through the New Testament over six months, and Peter talks about the suffering of Jesus several times. He talks about what Jesus went through, and he talks about what Jesus did for us. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18, Peter says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then in, first, in the first chapter of 1 Peter, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus suffered and died that we might live. Jesus was on the cross that we might not be. And we need to remember that, and we need to recognize that, and we need to celebrate that, and we do. But not through an annual holiday. Rather, we celebrate it through a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper, participating in His body and in His blood, as we participate in that memorial reminding us of what Jesus did for us so many years ago. And yet Peter takes that suffering a step further. He says that it's not just about Jesus, but if we look in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, he says that this suffering was not only for our righteousness, but as an example for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter points out in this passage that at the same time as Jesus was dying to make us righteous, he was dying and suffering to set an example for us because we as His children would suffer along with Him. Persecution will be a part of what we face as Christians. We will be right there in the crucible with Jesus as we endure the persecution that He endured. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 warns us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So how do we face this? When we are in Christ's crucible, when we are suffering, when we are being melted by the heat that the world applies trying to get us to turn, how do we deal with that? Peter actually is all about that. First Peter talks about the suffering that we face because of persecution. Now, I'd like for us to take a look at exactly what kind of persecution Peter's talking about, why it happens both from the the standpoint of the folks in the world, why they persecute us, and from the standpoint of why God allows it, and then finally, how we need to be responding to that as God's children so that we can face the persecution in a positive way that will help us grow and help draw people into the family of God. Before we look at all that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we lift you up because you are awesome and powerful. We cannot fathom your greatness. We know, Father, that you are the sovereign and almighty Lord who created the universe. We realize that you are all-powerful, that everything that happens to us is in your hands. 
Father, help us to trust You. Help us to lean on You. Help us to serve and honor and glorify You. When folks turn against us and speak against us and revile and malign and slander us because we're following You, we pray that You would give us the strength to carry on, that we might bear up under that positively, that they might witness our suffering, and that they might turn and glorify You to become one of us. Father, help us to love our enemies. Help us to do what is best for them. Help us not to revile in return or slander in return or or offer evil in return, but rather help us to be peaceful and loving and joyous and content as we go through this life. That they might see Your Spirit working through us as we've learned from His Word, that they might want to be one with us. Father, forgive us for the times when we've fallen short. Forgive us for the times when we've responded in kind to other people. Forgive us for the times that that we've not submitted to Your will and help us to overcome the tempter and to turn away from His snares so that we might glorify and honor You. We love You, Father, and we thank You so much for loving us. Through Your Son's name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by sharing with you the kind of suffering that Peter talks about in 1 Peter. If you're like me, whenever you read the New Testament and you hear them talking about suffering or persecution, the image that comes to your mind are stonings and beatings and martyrdom and and jail sentences. And no doubt our early brethren endured a great deal of that. And for the longest time, as I read 1 Peter, that's exactly what I saw there, that same kind of suffering. But recently I was able to sit at the feet of a brother named Johnny Felker who preaches up in Nashville, and he took me and several other men through a, a close look at Peter and pointed out that actually when we look at the words and the description that are used regarding the suffering they endured, Peter's not dealing with that kind of suffering. In fact, he's dealing very much with the same kind of suffering and persecution that we face in our modern day. In fact, I've got a lot of verses from 1 Peter, so to make it easier, I've got most of them up here on the screen so that we can read them and understand them more readily. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's happening here? They were being spoken against. Notice also in 1 Peter 3, 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. They were being reviled. In 1 Peter 3, 16, it says having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then in 1 Peter 4 and verse 4, it says, With respect to this very thing, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. In fact, interestingly, the only passage in 1 Peter that ever talks about any type of physical abuse was in the context of the master and slave relationship in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, where it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is the only passage that talks about physical abuse, and it's in that master-slave relationship. That's not something that we endure. That wasn't something that most of the Christians endured, even when Peter was writing. But very interestingly, in the main, in general, what we find in Peter is a verbal abuse, being maligned, being slandered, being reviled, being spoken of evilly, malicious words, backbiting and gossip behind the backs of Christians and sometimes even to their faces. 
the same kind of suffering and persecution that we face today. Now again, I have no doubt that the early Christians endured even greater persecution than that. But, but as Peter's writing, he's dealing with this type of verbal abuse as they're maligned and slandered. This is not in reference to some type of worldwide political persecution that was going on. This is not in reference to what happened in Rome with Nero when he uh, persecuted the Christians. This is the day-to-day kind of suffering that all Christians have gone through for all times. And we even go through today. In fact, interestingly, when we look at historical writings, we know some of the slanders that were offered. Because the worldly heard Christians talk about participating in the body and blood of the Lord, they accused them of being cannibals. Because they talked about things like let brotherly love abound, they accused Christians of being a part of an incestuous cult. Because they would not pinch the incense to the false gods, because they would not believe in all the gods of the Romans and the Greeks and all that had been there before them, they were maligned as atheists. Because they would warn people of the judgment to come and point out that if they didn't submit to God, that they, they would endure eternal punishment in hell. They were called haters of mankind. They were maligned. They were reviled. They were slandered. People spoke evil about them. And the Christians, of course, were distressed by it. They were in sorrow, discouraged, sometimes fear, because who knows when the words might progress to something more. But the reason why I wanted to share this with you is because if you're like me, I mean, I just always felt kind of like a second-class Christian because I've never been beaten for my faith. I didn't have the police called on me once. I almost got to spend a night in jail for Jesus, but I've never been beaten for my faith. I've never, and so I've always kind of felt like, man, I, you know, I must not be as good a Christian as they are. But I find it, and I know this sounds weird to say these words in the context of persecution, but frankly, I find it almost comforting that Peter saw the reviling, the maligning, and slandering as, as something that was so distressing that he wrote an entire letter to Christians to help us deal with this very kind of suffering that we endure. It's the very same kind of thing when people will say to us, Oh, I know you guys. I've dealt with your kind before. You're the guys that think you're the only ones going to heaven. Oh, I know you. You guys, you don't even believe in the Holy Spirit. Or, or they might say to us, What, you too good to drink with us now? That kind of maligning and slandering and reviling. That's the kind of thing that these folks were dealing with at this time. And Peter wrote to them to help comfort them. And I think we need to view this book as a very practical letter to help us as we face that day-to-day suffering and persecution from those who have put us down and malign and slander us. The question then is, why do people persecute us? Why does persecution happen? Why does this take place? Well, from man's standpoint, First Peter provides two different reasons that men will persecute and malign and slander and revile. In First Peter 2.15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Folks persecute us because they're ignorant. They don't understand God. They don't understand His will. They don't know. And instead of investigating, instead of finding out, they lash out. Here's something that they don't understand and perhaps don't want to understand. And so instead of studying, listening, and learning, they just ridicule and malign and slander the ignorance of foolish men. How many times have we heard folks say things like, oh, I know you guys are the folks that don't like music. What is that but ignorance? Oh, you guys don't believe in the Holy Spirit. 
Well, that's just ignorance. That's folks not understanding what God's Word says and not even understanding what we believe and teach. But instead of finding out and getting the Word of God and sitting down, they will malign and slander and revile. The second reason Peter provides is in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4. Remember he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They're surprised. They're shocked. Especially if they've noticed a change. Especially if, if you were in the world and then you've come out of the world and now your life has changed. They're going to be surprised that you're not doing the same things that you've always done. But they're especially going to be surprised that you're not doing the same things that they're doing. In fact, this surprise and this shock is going to be somewhat offensive to them. Let's face it, we all look at our own lives and think that what we're doing is the norm and is the right thing to do. And when somebody does something incredibly different, that difference alone seems judgmental. We don't even have to say anything to somebody. The mere fact that we won't go along drinking with them, the mere fact that we won't go along buying lottery tickets with them, the mere fact that we won't go to the same parties that they do, the mere fact that we won't watch the same movies and TV shows and read the same books and listen to the same songs, the mere fact that we might do something different is upsetting. And they'll view it as judgmental. In fact, they're maligning and they're reviling and they're slandering and they're speaking against us as is really somewhat of a self-defense mechanism. In order to feel good about themselves where they are, instead of investigating and finding out if they ought to be where we are, they're just going to make fun of us. They're just going to mock us. They're just going to revile us and slander us because then that makes me feel better about myself and I don't have to try to be like you. And so they are surprised and shocked and therefore offended at the difference and will lash out. But just, just interestingly... While Jesus points out, or excuse me, while Peter points out that, that they'll be surprised at us, later in the same chapter in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, he points out that we should not be surprised at them. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when they lash out. They'll be surprised when we're different. We must not be surprised when they act the way they're going to act. Don't be shocked. Don't be taken aback as if something strange is happening to you, as if, wait a minute, it shouldn't be happening this way. This is just natural. This is the way it's going to work, and we need to be ready for it. But perhaps the question that is more important in our minds is not why men persecute. That really does seem natural to us. But the bigger question for us is why does God allow it? Because God, the all-powerful God and judge, we might think that He would not allow His children to endure such suffering even at the level of verbal abuse and maligning and slandering, but then even beyond that to the physical abuse that sometimes might happen. Why would God ever allow that? Well, Peter actually answers that question for us too. And once again, we have two reasons demonstrated in Peter for this type of activity. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter points out that this persecution that we face, the suffering that we endure at the hands of men, comes upon us as a test. Now, we hear test, and we think about what happened in our schools, where we're going in and the teacher is trying to find out what we know. And so sometimes we might read this verse as if God is trying to test us to find out how loyal we are and really how much faith we really have. But that's not the case. 
because we know that the Bible says that God knows the hearts of all men, right? Acts one twenty four. The Bible demonstrates God knows our hearts. God knows how much faith we have. God doesn't allow testing so that He can find out how much faith we have. Rather, He allows testing so that we can find out how much faith we have. In fact, look at this example that I've highlighted here. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. That's the kind of testing it's talking about. The testing that happens when gold is placed in the crucible and it's heated until it melts. And you know what happens then? Because of its density, the gold goes to the bottom of the crucible and the impurities in it rise to the top. Now, when the gold is hard in our rings and our jewelries, we can't tell what impurities are there. I mean, it just looks like gold. And, you know, whether it's 10 carat or 14 carat, you know, no matter how pure it is, we can't really tell just by looking at this, but if you melt it down, the impurities and the slag come to the top, and then it can be skimmed off. You see, the reason the suffering is allowed, the reason the persecution is allowed, is not so God can find out where we are, but so that we can find out where we are. Let's face it, it's the times of stress and distress and duress when what's in our heart comes to the top. When life is easy and everything is going along, we can hide lots of things down in our heart and never know that they're there. We might even hide them from ourselves. But when the going gets tough, that's when our heart comes to the surface. That's when the character that we really have inside comes out. That's when we find out what we're made of. And that's when we can learn what we need to work on. That's why Jesus allows this. So that we can be purified and refined like gold is refined by the fire. So that the impurities can come to the top and we can wipe them away. So important is this concept that not only does Peter talk about it, but James mentions it in James chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter talks about it, James talks about it, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. In Romans chapter 5, and verse 3, Paul demonstrated the same point. In Romans 5, 3 and 4, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is what suffering accomplishes for us. It produces endurance and steadfastness and character and hope. I'll tell you the thing that we as Christians got to make sure we do is we allow our suffering to do that. Sadly, all too often, we allow the times of distress and stress and duress to be the exception. We act like, well, I'm going through a hard time, and so it's okay when I do these things that I know are not right. That's not why we go through stress. That's not why we go through persecution. God doesn't allow these things so we have a justifiable excuse for sin. God allows these things so we can learn the problems we still have that we need to work on. And instead of using it as an excuse to sin, use it as the means to get rid of sin in our lives and in our hearts. But the second reason that Peter demonstrates that God allows the persecution and the suffering is found in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 where God says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
What Peter is pointing out here is that when people witness the way we suffer and when we bear up under that suffering, they are going to be impressed with that. Many of them are going to be amazed at that and they're going to want to know how we did it and why we did it. And some of them are going to want to become one of us. What this is pointing out is that there will be folks who revile us. And 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 points out what happens to those who revile and slander us. Beginning at verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. <clears throat> They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, notice what the saints are going to be doing on that day. Verse 10, When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. On that day, those who have reviled and slandered and ridiculed and maligned and oppressed and abused and persecuted, they're going to be judged. They're going to be cast away from the presence of God. They're going to endure eternal suffering. On that day, the saints will glorify God and marvel at it. So now we come back here to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, and I ask myself the question, how is it that those who revile and slander are going to glorify God in the day of visitation? only because before that day of visitation occurred, they repented, recanted, and became one of us. And on that day, instead of being cast away, they will glorify God. That's how amazing the gospel that we preach is. Think about the thief on the cross. What an amazing story that is. A man who was reviling Jesus, but apparently as he watched Jesus endure the suffering before that crucifixion was over, he turned to the other thief and said, you be quiet. We're getting what we deserve. This man is innocent. And then he turned to Jesus and said, please remember me when you come in your kingdom. There was a reviler, a slanderer, a maligner who witnessed the suffering of one of God's children and recanted and repented and will glorify God in the day of visitation along with us. This is why God allows us to suffer persecution. So what should we do about it? How do we respond? We've got to be very quick here. We've got several things here, but I hope that you can get the outline on your way out. But I just want to run through a few things that Peter talks about here in this letter about how we respond to the suffering that we face. The very first thing we need to do is we need to look to eternity. Instead of being bogged down in the moment, we need to look to the reward that God has for us. We didn't become Christians so that we could have an easy life. We became Christians so that we could go to heaven when we die, when this life is over. And we need to remember that so that when this life is not easy, we don't turn away from it. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed today? No, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's saying, look to the end. That's when 
our hope is. That's why we became Christians. Because of the salvation that will be revealed in the last time. And then a few verses later, in verses 8 through 9, he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, he's looking to the end. That's why we're doing this. Not so that every day of our life can be easy, but so that when this life is over, we get salvation. Peter says, don't get bogged down in what's going on today. Look to eternity. The second thing is, Peter says that we need to remember who we are. We are no longer a part of the world. We are the separate. We are the called out. And so we don't act like the world. No matter what the world does to us, we don't respond in kind because we're different. We're supposed to be different. In 1 Peter 1, 17-19, he says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We need to remember that we are the ransomed. We need to remember that we are those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if God thought us so valuable to purchase us with His blood, we need to act like it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, he says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Like Jesus, our older brother who's gone before us, we are living stones that will be rejected by men, but we are being built up into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. We need to remember that. that we need to act like that. And finally, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous life. We are a separate people, a chosen race, a holy nation, who have received God's mercy so that we can proclaim His excellencies, not constantly question Him about why He allows us to go through this. Proclaim His excellencies before the world so that they might become one of us. The third thing that we need to remember is that we need to keep our behavior honorable. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, this time in verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We need to keep our conduct honorable. In the context there of 1 Peter chapter 2, he goes on to talk about the fact that that means we need to submit to the governing authorities. We need to do what they say, so long as they're not asking us to disobey God. It talks about servants and masters and how they're supposed to respond. And, and I realize we don't have the slave relationship now, but as we often do, we relate that to our worker relationship, employer-employee. We need to work as though for the Lord. We need to submit to those who are in authority over us. We need to work in a way that glorifies and honors God, not in a way that says I'm trying to get as much money for as little work as possible. But I'm going to keep my conduct honorable. It says that wives are supposed to be submissive to their husbands, even if their husbands are unbelievers. And it says that husbands are supposed to be honoring and understanding their wives. This is how we keep our conduct honorable. He summed it up in 1 Peter 2.17, saying, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. These relationships, this is how we're supposed to live. And what we need to remember is the example of honorable conduct. It's not our... It's not the guys at the gym. It's not the girlfriends at work. It's not the, the, the pop psychology. It's not Oprah Winfrey. It's not Dr. Phil. The example of honorable conduct 
is God Himself. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 through 16, it tells us that as He called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are supposed to have honorable conduct, and the example of our conduct is God Himself. Fourthly, we're supposed to repay evil with good, reviling with blessing. Instead of responding in kind, and some excuse me, when someone calls us names or says evil things about us, instead of trying to malign them behind their back, we respond with a blessing. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. First Peter chapter three and verse nine. We need to respond the way God would have us respond, not the way the world would respond. Be prepared to give an answer for our hope. Be prepared to give an answer for our hope. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter said, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. As folks see us suffer, and they see us bear up under that suffering with hope, they're going to want to know, why do you have such hope? Look at all these bad things that are happening. And we need to be ready to tell them. We need to be ready to give a defense and an answer for the hope that is within us. Love one another. We need to love each other. Just think about this. Think about the suffering and persecution that we're going to face in the world. We need to have a group of people. We need to have a place where we can go, and we won't experience that. If we're out in the world and we're facing the reviling and the slander and the maligning, and then we have to come here and face it too, no wonder people would drop out. But when we can come together with our brethren and find love and comfort and joy and peace and support, what a great thing we're offering each other to help us through these times of distress. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We need to love each other, being hospitable to each other, using our abilities and our gifts to help serve one another. Because that's what's going to help us stick with it when we face what we face in the world. We need to submit to our elders. Now, I don't know about you, but 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 have always been kind of surprising to me because it seems like it doesn't really fit. The rest of the book is all about the suffering. And then all of a sudden there's the statement to the shepherds and about the fact that we need to submit to them. But notice what it says here. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Notice where that began. It began with that word, so... Peter is not just adding something new. He's not just saying, okay, I've been dealing with suffering, and oh yeah, by the way, I've got to say something about shepherds. He says, so, because of what we've been talking about, this is how shepherds need to behave. Shepherds need to view themselves as the guides and examples that help us face up beneath the suffering and the oppression that we're going to face. Need to recognize they do that willingly, not under compulsion. They do it because they love us, not because they're going to get some kind of monetary gain out of it. And they do it as examples. That is, instead of pushing folks where they're not willing to go, they lead by example, drawing us along with them, helping us through the path that they have already forged as they have faced the suffering and the persecution. And what does that mean? That means we need to submit to them. Do you understand what submission means? 
Submission means they may say some things we don't like. They may ask us to do some things that we don't want to do. But we need to listen and learn and submit to the wisdom that they have offered because they're trying to help us get to heaven. They're not just trying to tell us how to live. They're trying to help us be saved. And we need to submit to them as we face all of it. And finally, Peter says that we need to cast our anxieties upon God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon Him, because He cares for you. God cares about us. God loves us. And He wants us to cast our anxieties upon Him, no matter what they are. He wants us to, to, to lay that stress that we're feeling at His feet. He wants us to lay the distress that we're enduring at His feet. And as we've already learned, this is far more than praying. Prayer is merely the first part of it. Praying to God and letting Him know the anxiety that we feel is just the beginning of casting our anxieties upon God. Casting our anxieties upon God means trusting Him. It means doing what He says. Some of us, though, won't humble ourselves before God. We think we're too smart for God. We've figured out that even though God has said that we need to act in a certain way, we know that our situation is, uh, is different. It's the exception. And if God had written His Bible to really deal with my particular situation, it would have said something different. And so we don't do exactly what God says. And then, of course, we just end up in a big old mess. Humbling ourselves before God means understanding that what God says is the way it ought to be. And trusting God and doing things God's way. Because that is what's going to allow us to have salvation in the end. And that's what's going to draw others in so that they can have salvation as well. We need to humble ourselves before God, praying to Him about our anxieties and then just doing what He says in His Word so that we can overcome His way. And that won't always be easy. It won't mean that tomorrow life will be easy, but it will mean in eternity we'll receive the salvation of our souls, which remember, that's why we became Christians in the first place. This is how we respond when we suffer. How have you suffered? Peter's writing to you. And I hope that he has helped you.